Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day that you've made. Help us to rejoice and be glad in all that you do. Thank you for the warmth and the blessings that you provide for us, for your love, for the fellowship we have here together, and for Christ and his, his life, his death and resurrection, and all that he has done for us and continues to do as our mediator and intercessor. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for allowing us to meet together, and we pray that you would speak to us all through your word, that it would be uh, impactful, you would say the things to us that we need to hear, and that we would put into practice what you've said in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Hosea chapter 10, if you'll turn there. In my yard, it looks like spring has sprung a bit. There was this vine that kind of grows in the background, and then all of a sudden, it's just there, blooming and everything. And um, When God created the heavens and the earth, he created uh, days, months, seasons, years. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.1, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And it's we would like to, some of us, like to be in perpetually one season of life or one season that we prefer above all others. But it's really important that how God has created things, that there is a cyclical and seasonal nature to life. And as the days, as our days on earth lengthen, we realize that time is short. We might feel a bit time poor because our diaries are deadlines. Um, and some of us tend to rush because of that. Others tend to procrastinate. Interesting how that works. Um, do you see time as your enemy or an opportunity graciously given us by God? That God's given us so much time, and we all have all the time there is, are we, and how are we going to use our time? And time, as it steadily moves on, it exposes our fickleness because we are the ones who want to go back in time. We want to stop time because something's so great, or we want to fast forward time to just get through this difficult season and on to the next one that we prefer. Um, instead of lamenting time spent, it's good for us to use the time we have now because God's given you time. He's allowed you to to meet with him today, to be in his word, to seek him. For centuries, God had been so patient with his people, he had, re he had shown himself to them, but they rejected him. He observed their hearts drift from him when they said, we don't want you to be our king. We want a king like all the other nations. We want a king to rule over us, to fight our battles. And Israel could be compared to a vine, that was planted in a choice place. And God had an expectation that it would bring forth fruit after its kind, like everything. Um, he created all things to bring forth after their kind. Nine times we see that in Genesis 1, that you know animals bring forth after their kind. Plants bring forth after their kind. Uh, but though they were of him, his people, they did not produce according to him because they departed from him in their prosperity, and they went their own way. And having departed from God, that source of living water that we read about in Psalms 1, they, they began to wilt, they began to dry out. And they, in their fruitless spiritual condition, they sought to fill themselves, uh, and they were like broken cisterns without water. 
And uh, so everything that they filled themselves with, it just leaked out, and they were left empty and fruitless. And their days were numbered. Hosea was speaking to them, warning them about what was going to come because they had been sowing wickedness and they would reap judgment from God. But there was hope for them if they would seek the Lord. And that's the hope that we read about today. While fruit is seasonal, you guys might have your favorite seasonal fruit, is always in season to seek the Lord. That's always what, if you say, what time is it? It's time to seek the Lord. That's always profitable and good for us to remember. So Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. God had made Israel fruitful. He had multiplied their families, vineyards, olive trees, flocks and herds, they all multiplied. And it makes sense that a farmer, he plants a tree to bring forth fruit for him, right? You don't plant food so the tree can have food. You plant something that bears fruit so that you could be, as the planter, the partaker of the fruit. But God says here that Israel empties his vine, he brings fruit unto himself, so the fruitfulness of Israel was not for the benefit of, the God, of God, but they used their fruitfulness for themselves. And that's the vine here. They attributed their wealth to, to hard work, perhaps their experience, um, or their idol worship. And in their prosperity, they began to invest in better idols, bigger shrines. Th- that's where their, their fruitfulness was expended in how to pursue more idols. So better materials. Their first idol on the threshing floor was a little piece of wood, and they got a stone one that was carved, and then they got a gold one. It's like they kept upping the ante, trying to get more and more in their greed, and um, it's true. The more money you have, the more money you spend. I read about a billionaire divorce settlement, which included $6,000 a month just on flowers in the house. I'm not a billionaire, so uh, it's hard for me to imagine setting aside a budget of $72,000 a year just to have fresh flowers in your house. But hey, I guess if you have it, that's fine. Um, but that's kind of what was happening. They had, this, they had this abundance that God had given them, and they turned it towards idolatry and to themselves. They didn't consider God. He provided this bounty to them, but it says their hearts were divided. They had this divided allegiance and their affections. They had intermarried with other cultures and adopted their gods and their customs. And they um, could not serve God and idols at the same time. And so he says, you're divided, you're found faulty, and there would be judgment. So he's not going to accept their, their offerings, which were akin to bribes, just trying to get something out of God. He knew that they rejected him. He knew that they sought other lovers, that they committed adultery against him in public. They were shameless about it. Clark wrote, Now God will do in judgment what they should have done in contrition, break down their altars and spoil their images. All throughout the scripture, God shows us his supremacy over all idols. All through. He shows his power over Pharaoh, who was believed to be a deity, and all the gods under his control. 
and by defeating the Philist, uh, excuse me, the Egyptians. Um, he commanded Gideon to destroy Baal's altar that was in their town that his dad actually owned. And uh, they said, you know, your son's got to pay the price because he destroyed Baal's altar. And he says, hey, let Baal fight for himself. He uh, caused the image of Dagon to fall down before the Ark of God and break in pieces when the Ark of God was stored in the temple. God strengthened Sam, uh, Samson through the Holy Spirit to push against the pillars of the temple to fall down upon the people that congregated there, who credited their God with their victory. He gave power over for David over the Philistine, who had cursed Israel with the names of their gods, and he was sl slain on the field of battle. So over and over, God shows that he's supreme over all idols, that there are nothing before him. And the idols of this world, they will all be broken to pieces. They will all be turned to ash. And the spirits behind them will ultimately be thrown into hell. Verse 3, For now they say we have no king, because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. This rejection of God had had these countless bad, unintended consequences for Israel. The kings that would rule in the northern kingdom, they themselves would become slaves to idolatry. They would become lackeys to foreign nations. The sovereignty and the power that Israel once had, they would lose that. In, and the freedom that they had under God would also be lost because they would be threatened by the enemies. They would try to strike a deal with the enemy. And the enemy would make demands. And they would pay those demands, but it was never enough. They'd be back for more. The security that they hoped for, it eluded them. The government was so dysfunctional and lame by this time that the king was more a liability than a blessing. And they said, we have no king because the king was a pawn without power. He had no authority. He had no power to, to protect them. God had made a covenant with his people, and they went back on it. They agreed to it, but they went back on their word. And the consequences of lies and deceit would come back on their own heads. Foreign kings, they, they made those peace deals that they went back on. So the other kings lied, and they were their servants. And God said, because of this, judgment is going to spring up like hemlock in the field. Now, hemlock called poison parsley. You guys ever had that growing around your house? I, I haven't seen it, but it's in New South Wales. It's famously known as the poison that killed Socrates um, when he was executed. And it tends to grow in wet, neglected areas. So farmers, they've made these furrows. They plowed their fields to plant crops, and let's say they planted the crops, and suddenly they see hemlocks sprouting up. That would not be what you want to see when you've planted oats or barley or grain to have this hemlock, which is a poisonous, noxious weed. It'll kill the animals. Usually they won't eat it, though, because it smells bad to them, and it tastes bad, too. But uh, that's not what you want to see, something poisonous in your field. And just like hemlocks sprouted up after a rain, so judgment would come to the nation. There's always a delay between sowing and reaping. It, there's, it's not immediate. There would be a reckoning 
in the future for their guilt with their lies and their deceits of the past, the shedding of innocent blood, their, their uh, extortion, their theft, and their lying, that privately sown sin would be reaped publicly. Read more in verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon, for its people mourn for it. Its priests shriek for it because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jareb. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Jeroboam, he was the first um, king of the northern kingdom when they were divided, he had set up these two calves for the alleged worship of God in Dan and Bethel. Uh, Dan's at the north and Bethel is near Jerusalem. And here it's, set, it's called Beth-Avon. So El, that's God, so house of God is Bethel. But it's a little play on words here. It's Beth-Avon. So God substituted with evil or lawless, lawless. So it's the house of lawlessness, the house of evil. And he said, that's what's going to come upon this house of evil. You call it Bethel, but it's not Bethel. It's a place where atrocities have been committed and great sin against me. Samaria, that was a region and also the capital city of the northern kingdom. And he said they would be afraid. They would mourn the loss of their idol. Their priests saw it as the glory of Samaria, where people would come and worship. And they would shriek for it. They would try to get the attention of their God that would be taken from them and given as a gift, stolen away and taken to Assyria. And what a shame to trade the glory of God that's eternal for something that could be stolen away and you lose. Jesus told a parable about a king and he said, isn't it smart that if you realize you're, you're thinking about their army size and yours, and if we were to fight in battle, they have, you know, a thousand chariots and I have two. And they've got 100,000 foot soldiers and I have 3,000. It's not looking good for our side. So a wise king would send a delegation before that army came to try to seek conditions of peace. That's exactly what Israel did, except they didn't look to God. They looked to the enemies to help them. Hosea 5.13, it says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. So they saw the Assyrians coming, and so they tried to make peace with them. They kind of made a deal with the devil, so to speak, just trying to turn aside this advancing army um, who ended plundering them anyway, who took all their stuff. And they trusted in their golden idol and their diplomacy and this paper-thin treaty they had signed, only to lose everything. And then when the Assyrian threat was realized that the Assyrians aren't going to help us, they're not going to honor the treaty, they went to Egypt. And remember, that's the place of bondage in their history. In Isaiah 30, verse 1, it says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. 
So it's good to take counsel. We know that in a multitude of counselors, there's safety, and that's good counselors, not bad ones, people who honor God. But he says, they, they're devising these plans, but they're not my plans. They haven't talked to me about it, and they're adding sin to sin. So forsaking the Lord and then going to the Egyptians for help, adding sin to sin. And when I read this, it just struck me how easy it is for us to seek counsel from others rather than God. I think with internet and with search engines, we have ready answers for countless queries. We have a question. We don't have to really even think about it too long. Very well, what does the World Wide Web have to say about it? We can avoid being confronted with our error or our need to change because there's plenty of people we can find that agree with us, with our own bias. And it's simple for us to communicate with people all over the world where if I need help from someone, I could text someone in the U.S. or in Canada. Or at a mo I can just be on the phone with anyone at any time to tell them my problem and to, to say, what should I do, right? We can read 10 reviews and comments from perfect strangers that we take on board and believe before we ever thought about praying. We haven't sought the Lord about what we should do. I mean, I, I believe he cares about what hotels we go to and what things we buy, but that doesn't often enter into our mind, right? We want the experienced person, and so we value that. Imagine pitting God's view against a five-star review. We just don't think about it, right? It just doesn't always enter into our minds. What is God's counsel concerning my issue or my question or my desire? It's wise to go to brothers and sisters in Christ, to ask and to seek counsel from them. But to seek God and to wait upon him, it's an exclusive activity. It involves not doing those other things and seeking him first and then waiting for him. Seeking him and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do about this career choice? Is this the company you want me to invest in? Is this, the, is this, the, is this an opportunity or is it a trick? Is it a trap that I should avoid? See, we forget, uh, we forget about him, but he doesn't forget about us. Um, when we forget to seek him, it may be we are swept like a twig on a flood, pretty helpless, so that we realize, I need help. I've got no hope here. I, have, I feel very unsettled. And this is what would happen. God would allow the king of Samaria to be swept away like a flood, like a splinter of wood on floodwaters, powerless, no ability to stop himself, and the sin of Israel would be destroyed. The high places, they would be overgrown with thorns, really alluding to the sin that had been committed there because thorns are a result of the curse. That was in um, when, when the ground was cursed because of... Uh, Adam's sin and sin passed to all men, and death through sin, there would be thorns overgrown. And people would say, because of their terrible situation, say, mountains fall on us, hills cover us, hide us from the judgment that's coming. So the illusion of strength and power would be gone. It would be exposed. 
Verse 9, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gebeah. There they stood. The battle in Gebeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Last week we talked about the sin committed in Gebeah in Judges 19, how the men of the city, they uh, were burning with lust, they raped and they killed a Levite's concubine. And when the nation heard about what happened there, it said they gathered together as one and they said, we need to take action. This is unheard of that this would happen in Israel. It's one thing if it happens in the heathen countries, but this is, this is Israel and this is not us. This is not on. And we need to take strong um, vengeance against those wicked people who committed this deed. Acts 20, I mean, excuse me, Judges 20, it speaks about how the people consulted with one another. They decided we need to take those people out. So who's going to go up? And then they inquired of God and said, who should go up to battle? And God said, Judah should go up. They go up to battle and they were defeated. So then they wept and they said, Lord, should we go up again? God said, go up again. They were soundly whooped again. And this, this was a a three-day civil war that killed over 65,000 people. Then, um, Judges 20, 26, after being beaten twice, we see a totally different approach to the problem, a different attitude. It says, Then all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept, they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The first two times they assumed what they should do. They consulted with one another, what should we do? And just said, God, who, who should go up to battle? But this time it was totally different. It says all the people, and it says twice, all, no, all. All the people went up to the house of God. They fasted, they prayed, they sacrificed. God answers them. He says, go up the third day. I will certainly deliver them into your hand. And only 600 of the tribe of Benjamin survived. Hosea 10.9, it explains the destruction of Gebeah, nor the slaughter of thousands purged Israel of the sin that remained to that day. See, we often think the si it's the person that's the problem, but the sin, that problem that was in the hearts of everyone, that had persisted all the way through. They thought they were going to purge out the wickedness that had you know, shown itself there. It was a symptom, but it's still there, and God saw it. Just like in the days um, when the Benjamites of Gebeah, when they were said, hey, deliver up those wicked people in Gebeah, the Benjamites were like, no way, you come and get them. We're not just going to roll over. And so great was the vengeance of the people that the other tribes would have slaughtered every single one of them if they could. But God preserved 600 of them graciously. And what had happened was in the first two days in success of defeating the enemies that came against them, the Benjamites were drawn out of the city, confident of their success the third day, while people snuck in the back way and burnt the city behind them. And it said, as they fought in the field, they turned around and they saw the smoke of Gebeah rising up. And it said they were stunned. They were like, oh no, there's no retreat. There's no stronghold. There's no place to return to. And that's when they were scattered. 
and they started scattering throughout the region. Some were killed on the, in the road. Some were killed from village to village until they were um, pretty much eradicated with the exception of those 600 that escaped. They would be systematically hunted down and wiped out. So the sins of Gebeah, God's like, it's still around, guys. You took vengeance. There's going to be judgment for what's happening here. The Benjamites were treated as enemies. I love that in verse 10, God's intent is not to destroy people. He says, I'm going to chasten them. I am going to correct them. Not for their destruction, but for their restoration. God preserved the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul, the first, tri- the first king, he came from the tribe of Benjamin. Another notable Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a Benjamite. We call him Paul the Apostle. Because God preserved the Benjamites, we see the grace that was sown in the Old Testament being reaped in the New. And being reaped also by us as beneficiaries of God's grace. So see, Jesus is that vine who's still bearing good fruit. The grace of God, the mercy of God, his faithfulness and his patience with people who keep sinning. Praise the Lord for his grace. Verse 11, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. Not all of us enjoy being compared to cows, but here Ephraim is compared as a trained heifer who loves to thresh grain. Now, why would a heifer love to thresh grain? Eating. Exactly. It was against the law to muzzle the ox that treaded out the grain. So it's like it's an easy day. You don't have to pull this heavy harness. You just walk around in a circle nice and leisurely snacking all day oh man that was the preferred job easy days day after day everyone's celebrating and the heifer's like right on it'd be like oh you're ready you're ready to work already i see like kind of nuzzling nuzzling its way towards that threshing floor so that animal that did that's doing profitable work gets to share of the reward and god was like a farmer who knew his heifer loved the grain, loved to thresh it, loved to benefit from it. But he says, I passed over her fair neck and I hitched her to the plow instead. It's not season for reaping a reward. It's time to do some hard work, to start plowing up that hard, neglected ground that's been baking in the sun. There's no chance for snacks, no time to eat. It's just hard work. That's what season it is now. It's a season to plow. Plowing needs to happen before the fruitful harvest can happen, right? That must precede the other. It was hot, dusty work, but it had to be done if there was going to be celebration and harvest. The people had sown wickedness. They would reap judgment. He says Ephraim and Judah, so Judah's not off the hook. They too would be hitched to the plow and made to break up the clods. We might prefer eating, but there is a profitable season of plowing that we all must endure. Because that fruitful harvest, it hinges on the plowing. In the parable of the sower, we see seed that's scattered without discrimination. It's just on the footpath, 
on the shallow soil, uh, in the thorny areas where all these weeds are, and also the good ground. Now notice the first three produced no fruit at all. The only place it was fruitful was the good soil, the prepared soil, the soil that had been plowed and prepared to receive the seed. And it said that that soil produced 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That fruitfulness marked the life of Isaac. In Genesis 26, 12, it says, Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. How would you like that return? Not just a percentage of what you put into the bank, but multiplication a hundred times. It's like putting in 10 bucks, getting a thousand. Like, oh, I could use that. That's, that's pretty useful. Better than just, you know, 3%, 100%. And I want to point out the increase of Isaac did not come, it does not say anything about his excellent plowing, his fertilization techniques, the quality of the seed, or his irrigation. It was a blessing from God. And the Philistines saw it and said, wow, this guy, God is with him. Because there's no way he should have had that much increase. It was so obvious to everyone that God was with him. God had made him fruitful. It was a miraculous sign of God's favor. And God bestowed that fruitfulness upon his children. Sadly, they, that prosperity caused them to drift from the Lord and to invest what he had given them in idolatry, in themselves. Now, we've talked about plowing. Verse 12, it says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. God would cause Israel to plow in preparation for sowing. And, you know, it's possible to plow and not sow anything. We might actually do that. We might see a bunch of weeds and turn over the soil and say, oh, this is going to be a nice veggie patch. But things happen and we never get to it. And what happens? It gets overgrown with weeds. So it's one thing to plow. Great. But you need to sow, and it matters what you sow. So once the plowing is done, he's like, sow righteousness, not wickedness, not lies. Sow a good thing into that soil. Plowing is hard work, but it is an amazing opportunity to harness potential, a new beginning, profitability, fruitfulness, usefulness. While it's possible to reap where or what you have not sown, you know, you could throw something out in the compost and you didn't really sow anything and yet there's this great vine that's growing and pumpkins everywhere. But this time there would be a correlation. We all like the idea of reaping mercy. But he says, sow righteousness, then you reap mercy. There's a contingency here. If you want to reap the mercy of God, then you need to sow righteously. The trials and judgment for sin being reaped, it was like plowing in preparation for sowing good seed. It's not how well we plow that allows us to receive the benefit, but the grace of God. Righteousness is never according to the law. The people thought mistakenly that their righteousness was measured by the law, but the law could only condemn you. It could not save you. It could not impute righteousness to you. It could just condemn. But Jesus, when we trust in him, our sins are wiped clean and his righteousness is given to us. And so 
the way to sow for themselves righteousness was by faith in God. And faith in God is demonstrated by obedience to God. They wanted to reap, a, reap mercy from God. They needed to trust him and obey him to put, to make an intentional uh, effort to remove what was sin of their life and to do the good things that he had called them to do, the righteous things. The nation would fall. There was no quick and easy fix for their problem. But no one's cut off from the mercy of God if they would do this. If they would put aside their sin, they would be broken in repentance and begin to sow righteously in faith. And they were told to break up your fallow ground. So not like break up the fallow ground, but your. He makes it personal for each person. That word fallow is used to describe land that was left untouched or unplanted for over a year. So you may have a part of your land that you intentionally lie fallow so it can kind of get more nutrients and be prepared for a uh, crop. And he says, plow up your fallow ground, that neglected area, that hardened uh, sun-baked crust. Get that broken up. The implication is it's a part of the land that was once fruitful but is no longer tended. So it was planted at one point, but it's been at least a year since it was. It's land full of potential, but it's covered with weeds. And it's hard and it needs plowing before it can produce any good fruit. Farmers don't waste seed over unplowed ground. And God does not shower forgiveness or restoration upon unbroken, proud hearts. And we can't say, Lord, break my heart plow up my fallow ground, he says, you break your fallow ground. Like it's something that he holds us responsible to do in response to what he's told us. There's a similar command in Jeremiah 4, verse 3 and 4. It says, for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Now, the sign of circumcision, it was a sign in that it was an agreement to the law of God, to that covenant that God had made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. To be circumcised in that culture was saying, I am in agreement with the covenant. I am going to take upon myself to fulfill the law, that whatever God said, I will do. The problem was their hearts weren't changed. They were physically circumcised, but their hearts were not. They were not in agreement with God at all. So like the inside did not match the outside. And the Jews viewed circumcision as a badge of belonging, a badge of blessing, just like some see baptism um, or church membership today. But claiming to be a son of Abraham and living by faith in God, those are two different things, right? All were commanded, break up your fallow ground. It's a personal need that they all had. And the text tells us how to break up. Well, it's all fine, but how do we do that? By seeking the Lord. The prophet said, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. They wanted to tread grain, but he says, break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. 
Like in Judges, remember when they sought the Lord in earnest because they realized, man, we cannot defeat these guys unless God helps us. There was prayer, there was fasting, there was sacrifice and offering. There was a denial of the flesh to seek the things of God. Don't misunderstand, there's no formula to follow. It's not like we can get our desired results or get our desired answer if we, it's kind of like, if I fast for a week, then God will do this thing that I want him to do. No. <laughs> if, we, if we fast according to his promise and we seek him, he will show us, he will reveal himself to us, and who knows what he will do. If you could please turn to Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3, we'll see that seeking the Lord is not so much about what you're physically doing, but how you do it, the heart in which you come to God. Zephaniah 2, verse 3. See, we love the, the formula approach to getting what we want. That's why there's a lot of self-help books and things that tell you how to be a better you and things like that, how to be successful in the world. Remember, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were masters at following the law, that formula of law. But instead of resulting in righteousness, it resulted in self-righteousness and sin that remained but this is how we seek the Lord. Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. There's no presumption here about, if I do this, I will receive this benefit from God. It's saying, humble yourself before him. Surrender your life before him. Seek him in meekness, not demanding, but in meekness, seek the Lord, seek humility, seek righteousness, seek to do what's right in his eyes. It may be that you will be preserved. That is humility. So seeking the Lord, it's, it's examining our hearts. It's humbling ourselves before him in repentance. It's believing God, believing that he hears and he answers it's good to be broken and repent of our sin, but having been plowed, what will we plant? Will we begin to plant and sow righteousness? Back to Hosea 10, verse 13. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way, in the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered as Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. In the past, instead of sowing uh, righteousness, it says they plowed wickedness, they reaped iniquity, and then they ate the fruit of lies. So what you plow, so what you sow after plowing, that's what you're going to be feeding on. And they fed on lies, and so they went astray. They departed from the Lord. Now their wickedness here, that's spelled out for us, it might be surprising. It's so fundamental. It was unbelief because they trusted in their own way, and they trusted their mighty men. They trusted people more than God. 
mean, there's a lot of things that he could have said there about this is your sin, but it was really unbelief. They trusted their own way rather than God. And so he would send an uproar among them. He would plunder their fortresses in which they trusted. Now, this Shalman who plundered Beth Arbel, this is the only mention of him. And so there's not a lot really known about him. There's questions, but there's no question about the terrible things that he did and the atrocities he committed in dashing mothers in pieces upon their children. It's, it's an awful picture of brutality coupled with utter helplessness that the most vulnerable among them would be sought out and destroyed without any help or without any protection. Like it's the men aren't there to protect, the army is gone, and they're, they're just plundering the, those who are trying to protect their babies. It's just an awful, helpless picture. And so he says, that's what's going to happen to Bethel, the house of God where these, these atrocities are taking place, where children are being killed as human sacrifices, where all, all this wickedness is, is happening. There is going to be a reckoning for that. And here we have illustrated for us the grave consequences of sin, of unbelief, of departure from God. And when this came, it's not like the, the Assyrians are coming, so double the guard, make strong the fortifications, or seek better hiding places, or run up the white flag of surrender. None of that is spoken about, but break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. Seek him. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. It was time for them to seek the Lord, and it's time for us to seek the Lord. If you're seeking something that's misplaced, like keys and you need to leave, you're going to drop everything else to find those keys. A Google search will not help you. Where did I leave my keys? Uh, That could be there. People, man. I I have not put that one in, but now I'm curious. You keep looking for them until you find them because you're not going anywhere until you find them, right? There's that very singular focus. I need to find these keys because I only have one set and I need to leave and this is my only transport and I have no time. I need to find them. So there's a sense of desperation as more and more places are looked through and they're just not where they're supposed to be. Do we seek God like that? Do we seek him with a sense of need and desperation? Like, except he answers me, I have no hope here. I have no help. There's no chance. It's so easy for us to lose sight of God. Days can pass, and we haven't praised him. We haven't spoken of the great things he's done. And when you read the scriptures, when you pray, are you praying and reading or seeking God? Are you seeking God by doing those things, right? Because you can read and you can pray, but you're not seeking God. You're not really looking for God. You're looking for an answer to a question. You're looking for some wisdom that you can tuck away and use later. But in our praying, in our reading, in our service, in our songs, are we seeking God? We can. So this is a reminder that we would. Israel was told, 
to break up their fallow ground by seeking the Lord. Now, can you look back upon part of your life just like a farmer would go, oh yeah, we used to, years ago, we used to have this vineyard over there, but it's just kind of gone by the wayside. I need to get over there at some point. Can you look upon your life and say, there's something, there are aspects of my life that used to be set apart uh, for some fruitful ministry unto the Lord. Like there was, I used to get up before, it was like a thing that I had to get up before dawn to pray. Or fasting. The Lord reminded me. That's something I used to do on a weekly basis um, that I haven't done for a while as a regular practice. And life is seasonal. That's okay. But that's an area of my life that's lain fallow where there would be one day out of the week where I would eat no food to seek the Lord because I felt like that's what he was showing me to do. Uh, there was a time where you went to a home group where you had... Um, you went to the park to share the gospel or you volunteered to visit shut-ins or um, whatever it may be. It's not about the, the action itself. But since then, there's a part of your life that's laying fallow. There's a part of it that is waiting for a new opportunity to be plowed up and to be stirred up so that righteousness can be planted there rather than just lying fallow. Let's every one of us break up our fallow ground. Let's seek the Lord. Let's seek the Lord in our worship. Let's seek the Lord in the reading of his word, in obedience to the Lord. Don't fall for thinking that because you're reaping a good harvest today, plowing is no longer necessary. Because plowing precedes, precedes planting. And planting precedes harvest. For everything Everything there is a season, and it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on us. He has come, hasn't he? He has come. Jesus has come. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, it says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus is our righteousness. He has come. And he has promised the Holy Spirit to all who ask him, to all who trust in him, that that living water of the Spirit will come into our lives, that we would be overflowing with that living water, that we'd be refreshed, helped, comforted. And I thought of Jesus going to the cross, and there were thorns on his brow, a picture of the sin of the world, the curse that he wore so that we could be forgiven. Now he's risen. He has ascended. He is coming, he is in heaven, but he comes quickly and his reward is with him. So he's also coming, right? I think that's so cool because till he comes and rains righteousness on us, he has come and he is coming again. And so until he comes, let us continue to do what's said here, that we would sow, we'd plow up that fallow ground, we would sow righteousness and glorify him. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are awesome in all your ways, that you have given us great potential for fruitfulness by your grace. Lord, in us, we're just like uh, boggy wetlands full of rocks and just not suitable for farming at all. But you have made us a choice field. You have grafted us into the vine, Jesus Christ. We are the branches. And if we abide in you, you say that we'll produce much fruit. And those who produce fruit, you prune that they might produce even more. 
Lord, I pray in our lives you would show us areas that have lain fallow for a while, perhaps for years, and how you would have us plow up that ground, how you would have us carve out that opportunity to sow righteousness in a place that there has not been fruitfulness for a while. And Lord, I pray that you would show us each as we seek you what that looks like, and we would do so with meekness and humility and righteousness through faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've accomplished. Thank you, Lord, for your word and these challenges you lay before us. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us and empowers us to do your will and be fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen.